And I know that many of the sermons from the Gospel of Mark have been deeply challenging for many of us. Some people have been emailing me and sharing that that's true, and this morning will not be any different. So again, this message in this message series is entitled Faith for the Real World. Now, in line with Faith for the Real World, some of us know that there are people who've been in the real world longer than others, right? Isn't that true? And so this morning, Melvin Knight is here, and Melvin is 90 years old this morning. So this is Melvin Knight. He's standing right there with his wife, Sylvia. So he is 90 years young. And Melvin, how many years have you and Sylvia been married? 50. Is that true, Sylvia? It's 57. Good try, Melvin. And uh, thank you, Sylvia, for helping us with that. And, uh, but again, congratulations and happy birthday, Melvin. Let's give him a hand. Good to see you this morning. Melvin was one of the first people I met at City 21 years ago. My wife and I slipped in over at City Church Central, and we visited the church on a Wednesday evening, and he was one of the handful of people that happened to be there at the midweek service and got to meet Melvin and Sylvia at that time. Now, in line with the sermon series, Faith for the Real World, this morning's message, again, will be taken from the Gospel of Mark. But before I get there, I think it's important to always remind us that we are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, and what that feeds into is this simple mission or phrase, and it's this, follow Jesus, serve others. If you take a cursory reading of the Newer Testament, you'll discover that these are two of the primary realities that Jesus steps into the world to teach us and to show us, and he lives them out. But again, it's this, follow Jesus and serve others. And part of the idea of following Jesus, when you live in the city of Charlottesville or the surrounding counties, God calls us to very specifically and intentionally serve others. And so again, I want to reemphasize that this coming Saturday, we will have the book bash on the downtown mall. We partner with Mount Zion African Baptist Church, Alvin Edwards, who preaches here for me at times, and he invites me to preach at his church. Their church is kind of hosting this. And again, you saw the announcement video, but I really want to encourage you to plug in, get involved, and serve. It's incredible to be there at the pavilion and see over 1,200 kids that come and get a backpack that's stuffed full of school supplies, which they absolutely will not have unless we help to provide them. So I want to encourage you to please be involved with that. If you're newer to city and you've never kind of done a practical outreach with us, I really encourage you to become involved with this. If you have any more questions, please reach out to the church office. Now, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels by far. And that's one of the reasons why I'm utilizing the Gospel of Mark this summer. We don't have a lot of Sundays to move through the book. But because it's short, it's kind of the Reader's Digest version of the gospel of Jesus. And also because the audience that is written to are a group of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They're being killed for their faith. 
And so the Gospel of Mark goes deep very, very quickly. Very quickly. Not only this, but oftentimes the stories that you find in the Gospel of Mark are not found anywhere else, but the one we will look at this morning is. But the Gospel of Mark takes these stories that have profound, how can I put it, they have a profound way of displaying what it looks like when the Gospel of Jesus invades a community and individual lives. This morning's no different. But if you are a person who's not a follower of Jesus, and you're kind of looking through the knothole of the fence of faith, and you've got people that are following Jesus around you, or maybe God's been tugging on your heart, you will find this morning that this story is one of those raw, deeply authentic stories about Jesus' interaction with people. We're going to read together, it'll be up on the big screen, we're going to read from Mark chapter 5, verses 24 down to verse 34. And in this story, it is one of those stories that just kind of is so raw and so authentic, and we're going to discover that together. So let's go ahead and read Mark 5, 24 and following. Here's what it says. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now let me just push the pause button for biblical context. Jesus has been healing people. Just prior to this, Jesus casts 1,000 demons out of one guy. He has healed a paralyzed man in his hometown. He's been doing miracles at different synagogues around the countryside, most of which are not recorded in the Gospels but are hinted at. Jesus has also done some massive public teachings by this time, and people now know who he is. They know that he works miracles, but Jesus is doing one thing that's unique. He is casting out demons. No one has done that before. Now, in conjunction with that, this fall, I'm actually going to preach two different sermons, one on heaven and one on hell. We'll take a, take a deeper look at demons at that time, but suffice it to say that Jesus' popularity was not just because of his teaching, not just because of his healings, but it was because he was casting out demons. He had spiritual power and spiritual authority that people had never seen before. So because of this, the crowds are now following him. It could be said that these are the years of popularity or the months of popularity for Jesus' ministry. There's a definitive turning point in each gospel where that turns to less favorable view, especially by the religious leaders. So the scriptures tell us in that first sentence that there are now crowds that are following him, and the Bible says they pressed around him. By the way, that's the Greek word, and since we're in wine country, it would be interesting to know this, that that's the Greek word for pressing grapes. Just picture how tight the crowd is. They're pressing in on Jesus, and there's an untold number of people that are in the crowd. Verse 25. It says, in a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. That's what she felt. Now it tells us what Jesus felt. And it says, at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. That word for powder, power is dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. So some dynamite had flowed out of Jesus. So here he is, and it says he realized that power had gone out of him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Reading on, it says, you see the people crowding against you. Jesus, the whole crowd, hundreds of people are pressing you like grapes, his disciple answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The Bible says she told Jesus the whole truth. It's a fascinating statement. And what I want to do this morning, as I do in every sermon, I want us to understand kind of the biblical context for what's happening, happening, the cultural context and the spiritual context context. And I think from it, God's going to speak deeply to each and every one of our hearts. Now, what you may not know, unless you've read the Older Testament, especially the book of Leviticus. By the way, if you ever read through the Bible, you're going to want to take something like caffeine to keep you awake as you go through the book of Leviticus. Because what Leviticus brings to us are the laws in the Older Testament for the people who are near around worshiping in and serving in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I say this often, there are 613 laws in the Older Testament. But specifically, the book of Leviticus brings about a group of people who are prepared to step into the temple and to step into God's presence and into the house where he lives. But if you were to read in Leviticus, you would find that there's an entire four to five paragraphs that speak to this woman's condition. Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 31, tells us in the Older Testament, in these temple laws, the spiritual realities of her life. What Leviticus 15, 19 through 31 tells us That is, if this woman is in the midst of bleeding like she is, it's unique and it's beyond what would be normal for what God has given her for reproduction. By the way, there are little ears in this room. So I'm going to speak in a way where all of us as adults understand. The issue that she's dealing with goes way beyond that. But what's fascinating is, that is, if you read in the book of Leviticus, you would discover that if things were normal in her physical body, that during that time, no one can come in contact with her. If they do, they become unclean. Not only this, during the normal time for every woman, when it comes to God's reproductive realities, during that time, 
If a man has intimacy with her, he is unclean for seven days. Reading on, you would find that God, who is a holy God, is laying out these mandates for who, how, and when people can step into the awesomeness of his presence. Now, what's even more interesting is that as you read in Leviticus, in this chapter, you discover that once it goes beyond the normal time of that, and that reality continues beyond what is normal, that this woman basically becomes a spiritual outsider to Israel. Because Leviticus 15.25 tells us that if it goes beyond what is normal, she is to be declared as ceremonially unclean. And anyone who touches her becomes the same. Not only this, that after that time, which is beyond what is normal, that after that time, she shall be cleansed. And the way that that happens is she must come to the priest in the temple and bring either two pigeons or two doves. By the way, doves were more expensive than pigeons. So if she's had this prolonged reality like this woman has, when all of that is finally what the Bible calls cleansed, she must go after seven days. On the eighth day, she must go to the temple and present either two doves or two pigeons. The high priest takes those, and he slaughters both. One is for a burnt offering. The other one is for a sin offering. And then she can reenter the community of faith. Listen, the cultural context of her life When we begin reading in in Mark chapter 5 and following, it just appears as though she has this health issue that has plagued her for how many years? Twelve. Can you imagine twelve years where this woman has this condition? And because Israel is a theological reality, it doesn't just affect her physically, but it affects her in every area of her life. Not only this, but at the time of Jesus, something has switched from how it has always been. And it's this. The Pharisees, how many of you in reading the Newer Testament have ever heard of a Pharisee? The Pharisees are religious leaders who are now taking what we call the Levitical laws that are specific for the temple of God in Jerusalem, and because the Sadducees have, the, have control of the temple mount, and the Sadducees have control of the sacrificial system, the Pharisees now take the Levitical laws, and they're enforcing them on everyone. So it's not just for people that work on the Temple Mount. It's not just for people that will be in Jerusalem to worship in the Temple. Now the Levitical laws are being forced on everyone by the Pharisees, and here's why. They believe that if the entire nation of Israel obeys the laws that governs the temple in the sacrificial system, that God's spirit won't just dwell in the temple in Jerusalem, but maybe God's spirit will move throughout the land. And so whenever you read about Pharisees, Jesus is very confrontational with them and them with him, but the reason why they're doing what they're doing is they believe that the Levitical laws will have an effect throughout culture if everyone lives them. Because of this, 
This woman has now got the Levitical laws imposed on her life. For 12 years she suffered, which means this, that if she ever had been married, she's now divorced because her husband can never touch her and remain clean. Not only this, almost all biblical scholars say that she would have never been able to have had children. What we discover is, is that we've got this woman who for 12 years has been suffering and she's paid every dime she has and it goes so much beyond just physical. This is about spiritual. It's about relational. It's about cultural. In order for her to be a Jew and be fully involved in the Jewish life, this has to be taken care of and everything that she's tried to do has failed. Not only this, her ceremonial uncleanliness is contagious. Whoever gets near her, according to the, Le the Levitic law, and touches her becomes unclean as well. Now, I want to state very categorically that as a man, I cannot comprehend how deep this must have hit her life. I can't comprehend it. Now look, I was sharing with a friend of mine the other day. He said, how are you doing? I said, well, I've just left my house and something's dawned on me. This is just a few weeks ago. He said, wow, no kidding. What's dawned on you? He's a friend of mine that we were kind of talking. We always have faith conversations. And I said, well, listen, I've just left my house and something dawned on me. And he said, what's that? And I said, look, I've realized that in my house I live with six women. Six. He said, well, that's not true. I said, no, it actually is. My son is working for a church in Washington, D.C., so I'm left in my house. And in my house, here's what I have. My wife, Fran. I have two daughters. I have two female dogs. And my mother-in-law has lived with us for over a year. So I'm living with six women. So if anyone maybe would have the right to say they could understand what this woman's going through, maybe I would. And you know what I found out? I don't. I, I honestly do not understand. And I say this with all sincerity, that I cannot compre can't comprehend the depths of the angst of her soul. Because in the Jewish world, she is a complete outsider, relationally, Spiritually, emotionally, she's off to the side. And so anyone during Jesus' day who reads what we just read, they would instantly understand, but especially women, especially women would lean into this story because this woman is living every woman's greatest fear at the time of Jesus. Now here's what the Bible tells us. If you would recall in your memory that here Jesus is, he's walking in the crowd, people are pressing him like grapes, hundreds of people are bumping into him, they're jostling him, and then the Bible tells us in verse 27, very specifically, that this woman comes up behind Jesus. Do you notice that? She comes up behind Jesus. Here's what verse 27 says. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. 
She came in from behind. Why is that? Oh, it's simple. It's all about shame. It's all about shame. You see, she would believe that if Jesus, who is a rabbi and he's a religious leader, that if he ever looked her in the eyes or she tried to square up to him, that he would literally jump back and say, don't touch me because if you touch me, I'm unclean. So what she does is she comes in from behind and she's very careful. She's not going to touch him. She's going to touch the cloak that he's wearing. Now, the cloak that he's wearing, most people when they read the Newer Testament think that what it is is that she reached out and kind of touched the hem of whatever he was wearing. But what we need to know is that the Greek word there is a very specific word, and it's the Greek word to maybe what you and I are familiar with, and it speaks of the Greek, or I'm sorry, the Jewish prayer shawl. If we could put a picture up on the screen. These are the prayer shawls that you see Jewish men utilize here. They're praying at the Western Wall, where Jewish men wear these, and they wear them for a very specific purpose, and the reason why is God commanded them to do so. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, God has commanded that Jewish men would wear a very specific cloth, and that cloth had incredible significance. The primary significance is a constant reminder of the 613 laws found in the Older Testament. We have to understand that how those prayer shawls are tied and how they're woven and how the knots are made, it's a constant reminder of the Ten Commandments. It's a reminder of the Jewish law. It's a reminder of those things that say that God is holy and unless we become holy, we are separate from Him. But what's interesting is is that at the time of Jesus, the Jewish men, especially the religious leaders, were wearing them, and so was Jesus. But it's interesting. As one theologian puts it this way, by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders were wearing this prayer shawl. They weren't wearing it to remind themselves of God's law and God's righteousness and God's goodness. They were wearing them as a public display to everyone else and to God of their own self-righteousness and their own goodness before God and before people. As a matter of fact, Jesus had enough of it. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, the Bible tells us very clearly that he rebukes the leaders, the religious leaders, by saying this, everything that you do is for people to see you. You make the phylacteries, which are the wooden box that hold the law of God on their foreheads. He said, you make that box exceptionally wide, and the tassels on your garments, you make them flowing and long so that everyone can see how righteous you are, and Jesus rebukes them. But you see, Jesus was wearing a prayer shawl, and the Greek word for that tells us that. You see, when the woman reaches out to touch Jesus, she doesn't touch his coat. He touches, she touches his prayer shawl, and the moment she touches that prayer shawl, the Bible tells us 
that power leaves him and that she's healed. Now, what else is fascinating is that the Bible tells us in this story that when she hears that Jesus is moving through her town, she gets into the crowd and remembers she's going to touch him from behind. She would never dream of facing him. Too much shame. But she reaches out to touch his prayer shawl, and what verse 28 tells us is that she has been telling herself over and over and over again, all I need to do is touch his prayer shawl, and if I do, I will be healed. And what's amazing is that verb, telling herself, is the imperfect tense. She's been telling herself over and over and over again, I need to get to Jesus, and if I do, I'll be healed. Now, as we read in this story, we discover that she moves towards Jesus, and as she does, she reaches out to touch him, and she does so to be healed. But the Greek word for healed here is the same Greek word that is used for the word saved, saved. It's interesting in the NIV, whenever it's physical healing, it says healed. Whenever it's spiritual healing, it's called saved. And as a matter of fact, that vernacular is throughout the evangelical world. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? That's the Greek word sozo. And what she says to herself is, if I can reach out and touch him, I will be not healed, but saved. Because healing is just the beginning. If he heals her physically, she will be saved. She will be brought back in to the spiritual community, and she will be able to worship God. Now, here's what I want to say. We come to Jesus for any number of reasons. They're all good. Sometimes we come to Jesus because of a physical ailment. Sometimes we come to Jesus because we need peace in our lives. Sometimes we, become, we come to Jesus because we just need something else. Our life isn't working. And what we do is we come to him, much like how the NIV translates it, it would lead you to believe that she's coming to Jesus to get a physical healing. And here's what I want to say. You might come to Jesus for a physical healing, but he loves you too much just to give you that. You might come to Jesus because your life is a disaster and you feel like you need a little peace in your life. You're looking to tweak a few things, maybe renovate a room or two, and Jesus shows up and says, that's not how this works. I will give you my peace, but I'm going to build you a brand new life. Jesus doesn't show up to tweak you. He shows up to save you, to transform everything about your life. I would also say this. Be very careful about the trends in our lives where we come to Jesus, and when we come to Jesus, Jesus, these are the things I want you to do for me, and Jesus begins to touch us, and Jesus begins to move in our lives, and then somehow we believe that then it's okay to go live as we did before we met him. The Bible's clear. She shows up to get saved. 
He saves her, and we're going to look at this in just a moment. He says to her, now go in peace. And the Greek verb tense is, do this for the rest of your life. Live this way for the rest of your life. Now, as we look at our story, she shows up to be saved. And Jesus touches her. Actually, she touches him. She reaches out and she touches the tassel. And when she does, the Bible says Jesus feels power leave him. He turns around to his disciples and said, who just touched me? And they say, Jesus, you're crazy. Look at all these people. How in the world will you ever know who touched you? And the Bible says Jesus stops and he turns and he continues to look. And in verse 33, the woman, knowing that she had been healed, knowing that she'd been saved, she comes and she lays at Jesus' feet, and the next phrase is profound. Verse 33 says, she told him the whole truth. Why? Because now he's unclean. You see, as a Jewish woman, She needs to now tell Jesus, here's my story. The law of Leviticus, and you're a rabbi, you would know this, that I've reached out and I've touched your garment. And in touching your prayer, Saul, Jesus, now you've got a problem. I'm unclean. And my uncleanliness is contagious. But what's stunning is Jesus turns to her. And does not say, go to Jerusalem, offer two doves, have the priest do the ritual so that you can become... He doesn't say that. Jesus turns to her, and what he says to her is this. Daughter, love that. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Sozo. Your faith hasn't just healed you, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Please know this, that when she comes in front of Jesus and she gets on her face and she tells Jesus the truth, the whole truth, she is waiting to be rebuked. And instead, Jesus uses a word he only uses once ever recorded in the Newer Testament, and he says it to her. And it's a word in the original language that's filled with compassion. He calls her daughter. Daughter. Only place he says it. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Now, I want you to understand something very clearly. When she reaches out to touch Jesus, she touches the prayer shawl that is a constant reminder to everyone of the laws of God in Leviticus. She knows that's what that prayer shawl means. But if you take the law of God and Jesus and you bring them together, you get saved because he fulfills the law. So the very emblem, that thing on his body that should have repelled her because he's wearing it, 
it draws her in. I love that. She reaches out and touches the shawl. And when she does, she's healed. Now, ladies, this story is so amazing. It's amazing because of everything that we've covered, but what even makes it more amazing is that this miracle is in the middle of another miracle. You see, Mark 5 in the areas that we're reading begins with the story of Jairus, a rich, powerful synagogue ruler has come to Jesus and requested that Jesus would come to his house to heal his daughter. But as Jesus is moving with a rich, powerful man, she shows up from behind because of her shame and she tugs on his prayer shawl and he turns and he waits and he demands that whoever has touched him must step forward and when she does, he calls her daughter. It's probably the first familial word she's been called in 12 years. And he turns to her and calls her daughter. It's amazing. That is amazing to me. And you know why it's so amazing? Is Jesus was traveling with a rich, powerful man. And he stops doing that to turn to minister to her. And every first century Jew would have understood exactly what Mark was trying to tell them through the gospel, that Jesus loves us all equally. Rich, powerful men do not get more of the love of Jesus than a woman who's been sidelined for 12 years. As a matter of fact, he makes her the priority in the story. As we close out our time, this woman actually begins a spiritual movement. Because in the next chapter, Mark chapter 6, verse 56, the Bible tells us that, and wherever Jesus went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his... Same word. She started a trend, and all who touched it were healed. This woman began a healing ministry because of her faith. As we think about this for our own lives, all of us, man or woman, I want you to notice that the story begins, that people are pressing into Jesus, but only one was saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you're around a bunch of people that are pressing into Jesus. That's why we're here. But there's a step beyond that. And the step beyond that is when you do like she did, is that you move through your guilt and your shame. You move through the law of God. You move through that and you get to Jesus. When you get to him and you reach out to touch him, he doesn't just heal your life. He saves you. He saves you. Let's stand together as we close. As we stand together, let's take a moment to close our eyes.
If you're here and you've sensed shame, I want to encourage you to reach out to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've been looking at Jesus so that he could tweak a few things, would you by faith this morning be open to him saving you? Freeing you up just not from a few things, but freeing you up from yourself. Let's reach out to him by faith and open up to him and surrender our lives. Not just kind of pressing or bumping into him, but opening up by faith and bringing ourselves to him and bringing him the whole truth because he knows anyway.